Good afternoon and welcome to the 151st of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today we'll talk about agriculture, farm workers, and COVID-19 with Jason Lusk and Alexis Guild. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for guests and future topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, October 19th, 2020, there are 1,116,138 deaths globally from COVID-19, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. There are 8,201,554 cases of COVID-19 reported in the United States. That's up from 8,027,412 cases reported on Friday. And there are now a total of 219,950 deaths of COVID-19 reported in the United States. That's up from 218,266 reported on Friday. Yet another stretch of time with almost 1,000 deaths day to day. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I like to continue that now. Headline, Trump attacks them, COVID-19 threatens them, but immigrants keep the U.S. fed by Susan Ferris and Joe Girardi. This appeared September 28th. It was published by the Center for Public Integrity and Mother Jones magazine. He was a poultry worker and a Mexican immigrant, but those details weren't documented when Rodolfo Tinoco became one of those who died so far from COVID-19 in the United States. Tinoco died May 12th at 63 after a month-long struggle in Gainesville, Georgia, a rural northeastern community in Hall County that calls itself the poultry capital of the world. Georgia health officials argue it's hard to know how Tinoco contracted the coronavirus. Tinoco's family in Mexico says that the Hall County doctor who cared for Rodolfo said he probably was exposed at the Pilgrim's Pride chicken processing plant in Gainesville, where Tinoco worked for many years. The doctor said other workers had the virus too, said Rodolfo's brother Gerardo, reached in Zitacuaro, Mexico. From public records, though, it's hard to know that Rodolfo even worked in a poultry plant or that he died of COVID-19. His brief local obituary lists no job, place of birth, or cause of death. Pilgrim's Pride declined to confirm or deny he was employee, and Georgia's official COVID-19 website estimates only total cases and virus deaths suffered by Latinos statewide. The ethnicity of individuals who've died in each county isn't disclosed, only victims' ages, if they had a pre-existing condition and whether their race was white, African-American, Asian, unknown, or other. If a victim was Latino, as Tunoco was, it's not noted, and that omission of ethnicity, ethnic, that omission of ethnicity is significant. Immigrants, especially Latinos, are risking their health in Hall County and across the country as essential workers who grow, harvest, and process food for Americans while many of their families are blocked from the most basic COVID-19 financial support, including federal stimulus checks, 
other taxpayers were eligible to receive. Nationwide research shows Latinos are among the hardest hit by COVID-19. A Center for Public Integrity county by county analysis drives home how crucial Latino immigrants are to US farm and food processing industries nationwide. The analysis was drawn from Census Bureau survey data collected by IPUMS USA at the University of Minnesota. Focusing on 10 industries, public integrity found 1.87 million workers in frontline farm and food processing jobs, 790,000 of them are immigrants. It's about 43%, a share that's two and a half times the percent of immigrants in the total US workforce. Nearly nine in 10 of the immigrant farm and food processing workers are Latino. In some counties, the vast majority, thousands of workers are immigrants, 70, 80, even more than 90%. Nationwide, one third of the 1.87 million are non-citizens. In Georgia's Hall County, the estimated share of immigrant non-citizens is even more pronounced. Public Integrity found that 78% of nearly 6,280 frontline food production workers are immigrants. About 72% of these workers are Latino immigrants and about 67 are Latino non-US citizens. Some non-citizens could be undocumented. Some could have green cards, which gives them legal permanent resident status. Most are employees of poultry processing factories that help make Georgia the number one state in the country for production of chicken. The Pew Research Center estimates that 65% of the immigrant population in the Gainesville metropolitan area is undocumented. That's the highest proportion in any metro area in the United States. Workers process chicken at the Fielddale Farms plant in Hall County, Georgia. The county voted overwhelmingly for Donald Trump in 2016. The food industry there relies heavily on immigrants whom Trump has attacked, an estimated 88% of at least 4,680 poultry processing workers in the county are immigrants. Arturo Adame, 29-year-old Latino, grew up in Hall County, and many of his older family members were poultry workers. He's concerned about worker safety and has volunteered to pass out masks to employees as they come and go from plants that run around the clock. He's disturbed at what he perceives as hypocritical support for Trump while the community profits from immigrant labor. We have chicken festivals and chicken statues in town, Adame said, but when it comes to immigration, they just put their heads under the covers. Once undocumented herself, Hall County resident Maria del Rosario Palacios told Public Integrity about Tinoco's death. She said she feels that he died in obscurity and unfairly after laboring in an industry now operating under executive order that the president issued April 29th, forcing it to stay open to keep the meat supply coming. Tinoco was her mother's co-worker. For much of the summer, Palacio said her mother had been sick with COVID-19. She's been living on disability payments that are 60% of her salary. Tinoco was also undocumented until he received amnesty through a law President Ronald Reagan signed in 1986, his brother Gerardo said. Unlike the majority of Hall County immigrants, Rodolfo died an American, he said, because the amnesty enabled him to apply for U.S. citizenship. Because government officials are failing to track cases systematically, the nonprofit Food and Environment Reporting Network is mapping accounts of COVID-19 infections and deaths of food processing laborers and farm workers. Based on news accounts and what data it can find, as of September 15th, the group had found at least 252 deaths and 59,079 virus cases nationwide. In Mexico, Rodolfo Tinoco's family is still mourning his passing. Rodolfo had remained close to family in Mexico, his brother Gerardo said, and as he lay weak in the hospital, Rodolfo would react when family would speak to him via Zoom. 
Doctors said his heartbeat would change, Gerardo said. The family is now coping with more anguish. A cousin of the Tinoco's, who's also a poultry worker, fell ill in Gainesville in August. COVID-19, Gerardo said, he died September 10th in the same hospital where Rodolfo passed away in May. Okay, let's turn to our conversation for today. I'm very excited to introduce my guests. And let me start with Alexis Guild. Alexis has been with Farm Worker Justice since 2011 in her role as Director of Health Policy and Programs. She coordinates Farm Worker Justice's health promotion projects and health policy advocacy. She works with advocacy organizations, community migrant health centers, farm worker, community-based organizations, and legal service organizations to ensure healthcare access for farm workers and their families across the United States. Alexis co-authored Out of Sight, Out of Mind, the Implementation and Impact of the Affordable Care Act in U.S. Farm Worker Communities, published in the Journal of Healthcare for the Poor and Underserved in 2016, and The Neighbors Who Feed Us, Farm Workers and Government Policy Challenges and Solutions, published in the Harvard Law and Policy Review in 2018. My second guest is Jason Lusk. Jason Lusk is a food and agricultural economist who studies what we eat and why we eat it. Since 2000, he's published more than 240 articles in peer-reviewed scientific journals on a wide assortment of topics ranging from the economics of animal welfare to consumer preferences for genetically modified food to the impacts of new technologies and policies on livestock and meat markets to analyzing the merits of new survey and experimental approaches eliciting consumer preferences. He currently serves as distinguished professor and head of the Agricultural Economics Department at Purdue University. He received his PhD in Agricultural Economics from Kansas State University in 2000. Alexis and Jason, thank you so much for making time to come on COVID calls today. Thanks for having us. Yep, happy to be here. Let me start the way I usually do, which is to find out where you're calling in from and what the pandemic situation is looking like there today. Alexis, can I start with you, please? Sure. So I am in Oakland, California. Uh, so currently, actually, in California, cases seem to be steady, um, at least at a statewide level. Uh, here in Oakland, they seem to be steady. Um, you know, of course, you know, it really varies around the state. And, you know, restrictions are still in place. Um, and in other parts of the state, this the areas of the state that are being hit hardest currently are the agriculture areas. So Tulare County, San Bernardino County, uh, Imperial County, and uh, Madera County. So I know that you do programming um, probably with those communities. Um, does that mean you have been out and about or are you mostly confined to the office? Uh, so I'm confined to here. It's not safe for us to go out. Um, there are uh, programs who are doing really innovative outreach using WhatsApp, uh, using phone calls, social media to do outreach to farm workers. Uh, but we currently are, are here in our homes. And what about fires? We've done so many COVID calls about fires and the pandemic. How has that in fact, has that impacted you at all? The air quality has not been great. Um, but it's getting better. Um, so for a while, the air quality was pretty hazardous. Um, but again, you know, compared to the farm workers out in the fields uh, in Napa, Sonoma, and then the areas of the Central Valley that really got hit hard by wildfires. And, you know, there are photos of them uh, who were picking and harvesting and the air quality was just terrible and they had no protection. 
So comparatively, you know, we're doing pretty well. Jason, let me turn to you. Same question. Where are you calling from and how's it looking there today? I'm in West Lafayette, Indiana, which is about midway between uh, Indianapolis and Chicago. Um, I'm on a college campus at the moment, so uh, we have all the challenges associated with trying to have a bunch of 18 to 22-year-olds here uh, in person. We uh, made an effort to bring the students back and try to safeguard that as best we can. Um, and so far, we've been relatively successful. We've probably averaged, oh, about 120 cases a week. Uh, so it's been kind of a low murmur. There hasn't been any big spikes so far. Um, and none of those cases, well, I shouldn't say none. I think two of those cases have resulted in uh, hospitalizations, but no no deaths among students or anything. So, um, you know, I think we've done about as well as you can do in trying to educate almost 40,000 students in this, uh, uh, in this environment um, around town. Uh, there's restrictions on things, although restaurants are largely open, but, you know, mask wearing and, and so forth is certainly uh, in place. I seem to recall that the president of Purdue was one of the very first out making a pledge that the campus would be open in the in the fall, Jason. Um, and what's been the, the secret to the low case numbers from your perspective? Is it access to testing or something else? Well, indeed, you're right. We made a, uh, a commitment very early on. And, and while that was frustrating in some senses because there was all the uncertainty about how to plan for it, you know, the upside was we knew what the target was and we tried to do the best we could to aim for it. Uh, hard to know exactly what what is, you know, at least at the moment, kept this thing at least somewhat under control. But yes, there's a lot of random testing that goes on. We required uh, negative tests of any students before they arrived at campus in the days beforehand. Um, and it just been very active on contact tracing and quarantining. But, you know, it just takes a bad week and this could get out of control as well. But uh, but at least so far, we seem to have been okay. I just feel like we're we're learning so much, literally every day, every week with this. You know, Drexel has made the decision not to return, mm -hmm. um, and I think in part because of the urban, you know, situation. That if it did get out of hand, we it's we don't really have a campus that's in any way separable from the rest of Philadelphia. So the risk there is is very high. Well, thanks for that that report. When you said you were you were halfway between. I thought you were going to say I'm halfway between Oakland and, and <laughs> New Jersey, uh, which you are, but you're also halfway between Indianapolis and Chicago. Um, we've got a lot to talk about today. I, I wanted to sort of start out, if you wouldn't mind, helping us build just a little context about where we are with agriculture policy in the United States today. And Alexis, let me just ask you this question first, just to situate us from your perspective. How has agricultural policy in the United States, and I mean that broadly, I mean, because you all have different areas of specific mm -hmm. research, but I mean, everything from labor to environmental policy to, um, you know, economic policy and regulation, any part of that you want to pick up. How has the Trump administration um, changed agriculture in America? And how do you think a Biden administration, if there is one, might change it again? Yeah. Um, so um, first and foremost, you know, we are a nonpartisan organization, um, but the Trump administration certainly um, through their policies had ma has made it really difficult for farm workers, honestly, in the communities um, in terms of accessing services. You know, they put forth an array of anti-immigration policies um, 
related to to DACA and DREAMers related to public charge, which has really caused a lot of farm worker families to disenroll from Medicaid and SNAP due to fear. Um, they also have um, just had these really terrible detentions and of course, increased raids and deportations, um, the weakening of the Affordable Care Act, even though most farm workers you know, may not have health insurance, the Affordable Care Act has really improved access to many farm workers to health insurance and, and weakening the ACA, especially um, you know, access around language and outreach has really impacted farm worker communities negatively in terms of the ability to access services. And then of course, um, you know, in terms of occupational safety and health, they um, they reversed a ban to, um, they, they reversed um, an EPA plan to ban chlorpyrifos, which is a highly toxic pesticide. They also um, have issued regulations around wage hour issues and labor contractors that have really encouraged employers to basically evade the minimum wage um, you know, and there hasn't really been much enforcement, unfortunately. Um, and then, of course, since the pandemic, uh, you know, they really haven't done much to protect farm workers. Um, they have not really adopted any mandatory safety standards. And also, you know, H-2A workers, even as other visa programs have stopped, the H-2A visa program continues. And so H-2A workers who are here on temporary non-immigrant visas up to 10 months, um, they're brought here by employers. Um, they are still coming to the U.S. and yet there are no protections for H-2A workers, um, even though they continue to enter the United States. Um, so it's just been very challenging. Um, we don't know, honestly, what a Biden-Harris administration will do. Um, you know, we we can, you know, hope based on their statements and records um, that they will support, you know, reversing most of the Trump anti-immigrant policies. Um, we certainly hope that they will improve healthcare access, um, increase protections. Um, we also hope that they'll support bipartisan legislation to protect farm workers. Um, so generally, you know, we, we're hopeful that, you know, there'll be a recognition of the value of immigrants and farm workers um, in their policies. Just so I understand, the H-2A visa is, is often used in agricultural industries? Correct. Mm -hmm. The H-2A program has grown dramatically in the last 10 years. Um, I think in 2019, there were like 270,000 H-2A visas um, that were approved by the Department of Labor. Um, it has grown year over year. Um, and, you know, the largest states are California, Washington, Oregon, um, California, Washington, Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, but every state has seen an increase in H-2A workers. And part of that is due to the immigration policies um, and growers looking to the H-2A program to bring in a workforce. I see, okay. Well, Jason, let me ask you the same question, uh, you know, from, from your perspective, what have you seen in terms of changes under the Trump administration? And, and if you wouldn't mind speculating how you think it could change under perhaps a Biden-Harris administration, what might you expect to see? Uh, big one is trade. So the the trade wars that we've had with China and some others, and that that's had a, a really big impact, uh, particularly on farmers in this part of the country where we produce a lot of corn, soybeans, and China is a big importer of U.S. soybeans uh, and, and hogs. So that was, loss of export market was pretty detrimental to farm prices. Now the Trump administration you know, sought some policies to try to offset some of those losses through 
these what they called trade facilitation payments. But uh, the point is the market losses were real, although there've been some compensations through other means. As a result, right now, if you look at total farm income across all the United States, um, a, an increasingly large share of that income is a result of farm payments uh, over the last uh, mm. three to four years. So, um, so kind of government programs, kind of ad hoc programs really uh, have, have been comprising a, a greater sense of of, of a greater proportion of farm income. Another factor, maybe it's a little different spin than what Alexis mentioned with regard to some of the pesticides and others, but the way I think the Trump administration would put it is, is more of a focus on deregulation in some areas is probably the spin that they would, they would put on that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, they've in the, in light of the pandemic issue, they've had some interesting things like these food boxes, <laughs> which are you know, somewhat unique. I won't comment on my own personal thoughts on those, but uh, it's certainly been an interesting policy that's different than some others that we've seen. Um, I do think one aspect that you don't hear a lot about, and I, maybe in terms of full disclosure, I, I have, I'm on a USDA advisory board that's appointed. Um, so we advise the undersecretary for research education. And I think they've actually done a pretty good job promoting parts of the agricultural research agenda. They've increased funding for agricultural research. They've gotten mm -hmm. some bad press about, you know, not doing enough research on climate change and cl climate adaptation. I think if you actually look at the portfolio of research going on in that agency, they actually have a, a, a healthy portfolio of research on, on climate adaptation. Of, of course, it would always be better for them to do more. <laughs> um, but I think that that's an area where they've probably done well. What about uh, Biden-Harris administration? I don't know. Um, you know, they haven't said a lot about farm and ag policy, I guess, because it, the presidential politics runs through Iowa. They talk a lot about ethanol, but um, I don't know that there's a lot of distance uh, necessarily in the administrations. There are probably some of the particulars. In general, I think I would agree with what uh, Alexis said. One thing I might add to that is I suspect it's an administration that would focus uh, more on kind of environmental aspects of farm production. So I would anticipate maybe more environmental regulation, but also those subsidies that do flow to farms probably on the margin, we would see a push towards making those subsidies tied to various env environmental outcomes. Just to bring it a little bit into some of the, the horse race politics, Jason, just like stay with you for a minute. Um, you know, Iowa's actually, I think, a state that's in play. It looks like Ohio may be. I don't think Indiana is, but some people are, are at least 538 says that perhaps Georgia even is. So these are heavy agricultural states. And I wonder, you know, just if you wouldn't mind commenting what you're seeing, what kinds of issues there are galvanizing farmers from either from either Trump's perspective, Biden, as you said, as you said, kind of been a little bit of a missing part of our discussion in this campaign. Um, but um, you know, I know you're pretty attuned to it. So, what are you hearing out there? Well, farmers certainly punch above their weight class in terms of their impacts on politics. So they're a very small share of the population, less than two percent, but they're well organized. And um, it's, you know, this sort of classic case where there's a, a small group of people, but kind of concentrated benefits, they organize well to, to promote their interests. And um, so as a result, they do, they do have impacts, sort of outsized impacts in a lot of the states that you mentioned. You can see that, you know, for example, in, in some of the ethanol policies that we see, you know, part, both sides of the aisle essentially promoting those sort of policies because of the impact, the influence. Uh, actually, it was actually just yesterday, a day before yesterday, there was a, 
the senatorial election in Iowa, there was a question about what was the break-even price of soybeans or what was the oh, market price that. of corn that caused like a big kerfuffle. So that, that kind of shows you that in states like that, it's it's big enough to matter and in part because those, they almost, they don't vote, vote as a block, but they can move together as a group. In general, I would say at least in this part of the world, and you know, it's, this is obviously a, a not a stereotype, but a generalization that, you know, the the farmers around here have been, you know, largely supportive of the Trump administration in light of some of those negative consequences of uh, the trade policies that I mentioned before. And I think, you know, what what I hear some of them say sometimes is, well, this is like a short term pain for a longer term benefit of of kind of kind of fairer trade in the future, um, and it hasn't really. And maybe because of some of these payments, these ad hoc payments have come back to the farm sector. You know, I don't want to call it a buy-off, but that's offset maybe some mm-hmm. of what would have been negative concerns in this part of the country. So, um, you know, but it's it's a diverse, you know, farmers are not a, a monolithic <laughs> group. Right. And I think some of Alexis could probably tell us more, but the, the farm workers are even maybe a very different group than the farmers themselves. What happened to Joni Ernst? Did she just have a, a just a moment of forgetfulness <laughs> there? I, it, it is rare that soybean prices make it into the front page of the New York Times, but uh, there you had it. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure there. That's probably one. I guess if I would well. Obviously, uh, she would like to have a re go at that question. <laughs> at, a, at a minimum, she probably would have, you know, could have said something like, uh, "I may not know the answer to that, but I know I know the person to call uh, yeah, to help me yeah. uh, think about these farm policy issues." So, well, I just want to remind everybody you're listening to COVID calls, and uh, today we're talking about agriculture and farm workers and COVID-19. And uh, let me just turn to Alex, Alexis, let me turn to you and let's get a little bit of perspective. I think the story of essential workers in the pandemic was one that was very much in the news in April and May. Seems to me it's fallen out of the news quite a bit since then. And I was wondering if you could kind of just give us a kind of a landscape view um, from your perspective, the way that, you know, the farm workers role as essential workers has played out in this pandemic and, you know, what's been the impact in terms of infection rate and death and vulnerability? Yeah. Uh, well, I, you know, I think farm workers are still in the news. Um, I, you know, there was actually a New York Times article today and actually um, Professor Lusk was actually um, quoted in that article. Um, but there's an article in the New York Times today about um, H2A workers um, on, uh, who are working for um, a tomato grower um, and they were on the eastern shore of Virginia. But so I think farm workers are still very much kind of on people's minds. Um, and, you know, and farm workers have always been essential um, even before the pandemic. They've always been essential. They are essential to our food supply, uh, essential to our communities. Um, But the pandemic, I think, has really kind of shown how crucial they are. Um, And unlike, you know, you and I, uh, they can't work inside. 
uh, they can't do their work remotely. Um, they have to be out in the field. Um, so they are really at the front lines. You know, they are um, similar to the meat packers, the grocery store workers, the truck drivers. They're at the front lines. Um, and quite frankly, they are risking their health to ensure that we have a stable supply of fruits and vegetables here in the United States. And they are vulnerable because of their living and working conditions. And I think that has shown in the infection rates. Now, um, I will say that there's not a lot of data for farm workers generally. Um, so it's hard to say exactly how many farm workers have been um, tested positive for COVID, have died of COVID. I know Purdue has been doing some data um, collection. And according to Purdue, um, I, I think it's around 145,000 farm workers who have contracted COVID. But again, we we don't know honestly. You know, we don't know how many farm workers are being infected. Um, you know that the data is um, is not really um, out there. Uh, we know that there have been outbreaks on farms. Um, we know that Latinos and the Latinx community are disproportionately affected by COVID. They have underlying conditions um, that make them more vulnerable to COVID complications. Um, so yeah, they, they are, but they are there, they are working um, in very hazardous conditions and, and we need to appreciate the work and their contributions. Can you say a little bit more about the vulnerability factors? I think that's really important. Is, is it the um, multi-generational families? Is it that the lack of data reporting and, and so therefore they're they're not receiving the kind of healthcare services that they need. Is it? I mean, I can think of many different examples of what yeah. those vulnerabilities might be, but I don't know how to order them or rank them. Can you give us a little bit of a sense <laughs> of the importance of those? So I would say first and foremost, it's their working conditions. Um, so they are out in the fields. It's hard to socially distance in the fields. Um, they don't necessarily have access to hand washing stations. They don't necessarily have access to sanitation supplies. They share tools. Uh, they tend to work on a piece rate, meaning that the amount that they earn um, is based on how much they harvest or pick. And so it's hard for them to take breaks. They don't really have um, sick leave. Uh, they tend to live in crowded housing, um, you know, due to low wages. You know, the, a lot of farm workers live in an, a, a variety of types of housing, from barracks to trailers to garages to cars to to apartments. You know, multiple families, which of course, you know, the crowded housing certainly um, doesn't help when it comes to COVID transmission. Uh, and then, you know, there are farm workers who live in employer-fied housing. And these farm workers, like H-2A workers, live in employer-fied housing, and they have no control over their housing conditions at all. Um, you know, it's it's hard for them to access water necessarily. They may not have that access. Uh, and they also get transported to and from the fields. Uh, and the, the transportation tends to be crowded. So, I mean, th there are so many reasons. And, and, you know, they also have a lot of chronic conditions. And as we all know, chronic conditions make you more vulnerable to COVID complications. And, you know, um, there are high incidents of diabetes, of asthma, um, of other respiratory issues due to their working environment, due to food insecurity, due to pesticide exposure, and so on and so forth. Um, so there are a lot of reasons why farm workers are particularly vulnerable to COVID. 
You also mentioned the fires, and we were talking about that earlier. And of course, it's hurricane season. I mean, there's other sort of quote unquote normal disasters yeah. that may also um, bring mm -hmm. to play the sort of compound effect of vulnerability for farm workers. Um, Jason, mm -hmm. I know you've done a, a deep dive on different aspects of the of the food supply and uh, the pandemic. I know you took a close look at meat packing, and I wonder if you could. Um, maybe just give us a sort of high-level summary of what you what you found. I was reading it; it's some really interesting sort of insights that you had about you know meat production last year versus this year, and maybe some surprises, some counterintuitive things that you that you located in that. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. So, uh, if you don't mind, I might just mention one thing that Alexis Absolutely. mentioned about the tool that we have here at Purdue on these ag worker illnesses. And this is not an area that I've spent a lot of time studying over my career, but, you know, when things come up, you, you know, and there's not data, you just try to bring to bring together things you think, you know, to help, help move the debate forward. So yeah, that estimate you mentioned, I think today it was like at 150,000, roughly, it's almost certainly an, certainly an underestimate because we, we, you know, obviously we're not counting undocumented workers, but also a lot of migrant labor, we're not counting in those data because we just, there's just not good data for it. Um, so that, that's been a, a real challenge and, and we, we hope to continue to update that, that tool. So yeah, on the meat packing uh, side of things, and, and maybe this is a good segue, that tool, that 150,000 roughly, that's farm workers. It doesn't measure anybody else throughout the food system, the food chain, including meatpacking workers. So, you know, beginning in, in sort of middle of April, throughout really the middle of May, uh, we had a real serious condition in our meatpacking plants, mainly beef and pork plants. Um, chicken, for whatever reason, just wasn't as affected um, maybe for reasons we can get into if you want want to, but um, at, at probably the worst point, which was really end of April, 1st of May, both beef and pork plants were running at about 40% below processing volumes at, at the same time last year. So, which which is a really an unprecedented reduction. And that, that occurred because a lot of the biggest plants closed down. Um, they had you know, large spike in infections in those plants. And even whenever they could get back up and running, they were trying to adopt various safety measures, social distancing. Sometimes workers didn't want to show up to work. So they were having to deal with, you know, uh, a lack of a workforce. So it, it took a while even still to try to get back to normal. Uh, and that, you know, caused a, a massive increase in food prices. You can see in the, our, our CPI, the consumer price index data, the monthly change in retail food prices in grocery store from, I think it was, uh, April to May was higher than at any time that we've seen since the 1970s, that monthly change. And most of that was because of increase in meat prices. So it, it did have effects that trickled on down to the to the consumer. I think that's a real trade-off, real tough thing to think about in this definition of essential because, you know, we want our food. Uh, we want to go to the grocery store. We want it to, have, to be well stocked. And often the people that, that provide those essential functions uh, are not as well paid and are vulnerable in a bunch of dimensions. Um, and yet we consider them essential. So it's a really tough conundrum that, uh, that, and sometimes I think it showed what we take for granted in our food system, uh, what, what it takes to get food and the people involved in our food system to get it there. Um, you ask about some counterintuitive things. Uh, a couple things. One is it's, it's created a lot of controversy, maybe gets us back to some politics, but, 
at the time that meat prices were rising, livestock prices were falling. And I think from an economic standpoint, that makes sense. Uh, but for a lot of the, the farmers out there, the producers, it was pretty, you know, they, they felt it was pretty outrageous that they were getting a lower price for their animals while the meat packers and grocers were getting higher prices for their meat. Um, that, I mean, I think it's what economics would predict would happen if you had a, a, a breakdown in the processing sector. But nonetheless, it's got to be frustrating um, whether whether it's has an economic rationalization or justification doesn't always feel fair all the time. I think uh, uh, hopefully I'm not getting off on too uh, wild of a goose chase here, but I think another interesting kind of counterintuitive thing that happened, there's been discussion about when we had a lot of these meat shortages and things, you know, what would happen to this emergence of these plant-based meats that have started coming on the market the last few right. years. And early on in the pandemic, when we saw early March, kind of mid to late March, when we saw the runs on the grocery stores, uh, the big, percent sales growth of some of those plant-based products. But when the, we saw the worst of the meat plant shuts down, shutdowns, there wasn't a big spike in plant-based sales during that period, which I think is just an interesting phenomenon, kind of curious trend. And it, and it may be that, you know, I think it goes to show that uh, maybe some of the people buying some of these plant-based alternatives weren't big meat eaters to begin with. Um, so just different sets of people in some cases, but, I, but that's, you know, that's a, a big research question for maybe another day. I imagine that's something you're going to be taking a look at. Indeed. Yeah, because consumer preference in, is a big part of what you, you're mm -hmm. interested in. Um, I, I just want to stay with this for a second because I, um, keeping up with my you know parents throughout the pandemic and, and being from Texas, uh, won't surprise you that my conversation with my father from time to time turns to beef. And, um, you know, I mean, and he was really concerned, as were many, that he wasn't going to be able to get meat. And, and this was sort of the discussion that was going on in April. Um, and I, I guess I want to sort of tie that into this, you know, the executive order that the president put out. I mean, was that a necessity? Was that a, was that a political gesture to try to calm people who might just be concerned that the wheels were falling off the national economy at that moment? Or was that actually, from your perspective as an economist, a really sort of crucial move to make at that moment? I think during the heat of it, and I was on calls that included some of the biggest meat packers and you know producer organizations. Most people weren't really sure what the executive order meant, like on the ground in terms of the legal aspects of it. I, I think one of the things it did though is provide some motivation um, for these you know packing plants to get back up and running as quickly as they could. And you know all these plants were they they're involved in this national conversation because our biggest, maybe this might be useful. I didn't say this earlier. Um, our packing sectors are fairly he heavily concentrated. So the 10 largest beef packing plants produce about 60% of all the, all the beef in this country. So if one of them goes down, it's big enough to have kind of aggregate impacts across the country. And, but all those plants, even though they're so big, they're in a, they're in a community. And even if the owners want to turn on the, the light switch, you got to get your workers to sh show up and you got to get your local community to be on board with it. So I think one of the things the executive order kind of did, and it, this is not, you know, I would, I don't know if it's a direct effect or not, but it created an environment which it kind of elevated this discussion uh, to, to try to get these things back up and running. And um, I, I think it was surprising to me early on in the pandemic that um, when I went to the grocery stores here in Indiana, that meat was one of the items that was was stocked out because it, it's not what I would have predicted 
mm. you know, maybe the pasta and the flour, some of that stuff made yeah. sense to me, self-stable. Cleaning, cleaning it, items. Exactly. Sure. Um, but the meat was surprising. It's a relatively expensive item. It's perishable, but something about the pandemic, you know, caused people to yeah. to want to make a run on their grocery stores. And you're right. It was, uh, I've done a lot of media in, in my academic career, but probably I did, you know, more media discussion with every major media outlet during April and May than I did in the previous 20 years. And, and I say that just to say, people were freaked out about not having enough meat mm -hmm. <laughs> to buy. And it, it was pretty remarkable in the, in the heat of it. Alexis, let me bring you in on this, just on this issue around um, the farm workers and this essential worker characterization mm -hmm. and the executive order. Um, I'm kind of curious from your perspective, sort of how that was perceived by farm workers. Um, you know, there's a, there's a, a conflict in, inherent there in what you were telling us about earlier about all the vulnerabilities of farm workers and then um, and in the meatpacking industry as well to be all of a sudden to be told that they're essential to the nation in a pandemic it seems to be a mm -hmm. um, conflict inherent mm -hmm. in that i wonder if you could speak to that a little bit i think there are a couple of conflicts i think one is the fact that these workers who are predominantly undocumented predominantly immigrants who have been vilified by you know um the administration in many ways um and there have been policies put in place to restrict them and to and 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 to encourage them to leave that they are now essential to our economy because we always know that they're essential but you know but they've been so vilified um that it's, it's ironic in a way to go, oh, well, we don't really need you, except when we need you because there's a pandemic and we need you to continue the food supply, the meat supply. I think the other, the other um, issue is that, you know, there's this emphasis on we need our fruits and vegetables, we need our meat, and we need these, you know, we need the farms up and running, we need the meat, you know, the meat packing plants up and running, but there are no protections in place to protect the workers. It's really focused on output as opposed to really protecting those workers who are the reason why there have been shutdowns because the workers are getting sick. So the workers are getting sick and the plant shuts down, the farm shuts down, but if there are protections in place, then that could be avoided. And so it's, it's, there's a disconnect in a way. Can you say a little bit more about those protections that you know, in the in the heat of this, you know, last few months, I mean, the government can cha has changed, for example, environmental protection rules. I mean, regulatory policy can get changed in the middle of a disaster it happens all the mm -hmm. time. I'd be curious to know kind of how that discussion has played out a little bit. So OSHA and CDC put forth guidance um, in June on agricultural workplaces, but they have yet to put forth an actual protection. Um, OSHA can put forth what's called emergency temporary standard, which would be used to protect workplaces and protect workers. OSHA has not done that. Um, and the guidance from CDC and OSHA is all well and good, but it's guidance. It's not mandatory. There's no enforcement behind it. And so absent these federal protections, absent any federal uh, regulations, it's really been up to the states. Um, so a handful of states, 11 states have actually put in place protections, mandatory protections for agricultural workplaces. 20 have put in place guidance 
which is non-binding. So it's similar to the CDC guidance where it's like, well, we think you should do this and here are our recommendations, but really no teeth behind it. And then the other states have nothing. And so what has been the result is a patchwork where in some states, um, you know, workers are protected and employers are putting in place protections and in other states and areas, they're not. And there are some agricultural employers um, in a number of states that are doing the right thing and they are putting in place those protections. But unfortunately, um, there are a number of agricultural employers who are not. And in states where there are no mandatory regulations, there's really no enforcement mechanism and, and no way for those workers to actually um, to be protected and to enforce those protections. You know, um, Alexis, Jason was talking about the farm uh, farmers being uh, proportionally very small percentage um, of owners, I guess, workers in America, the farm owners themselves, 2%, uh, with an outsized uh, political power in part because they're organized. What about farm workers? I mean, obviously there's there's problems here for undocumented laborers, but, you know, unions and um, sort of, I, I guess you could sort of just give me a little bit of the lay of the land of how that political pressure is working, can work in this moment. I'm sort of expecting in states like, you know, what you're telling us that some states have sort of taken that guidance and they have their own state laws and it's been a better time for regulation. How has that political pressure brought to bear, maybe in states that aren't doing as well as you would think? Um, well, certainly there are unions. Um, so there's United Farm Workers, there's a Farm Labor Organizing Committee, there's um, the PACUN, Pinedos de Campesinos, uh, Unidos del Noroeste, um, up in Oregon and Washington. Um, I mean, you know, there there are a number of, you know, just to name a few, I mean, there are a number of labor unions um, who are out there and really, you know, working to protect workers. There are also a number of advocacy organizations um, who are working together to try to uh, put in place protections and advocate for protections, both at the federal level and the state level. Um, you know, uh, it's it's uh, a, a lot of people have come together, um, you know, national, state, local have come together to to really try to protect these workers and and try to push for regulations and push for protections. And some have been more successful than others. Um, but that doesn't mean that the work stops. Hmm. What's the perception of farm workers nationally? I mean, this is a question that I know is kind of a moving target. And, and again, sort of culturally speaking in the United States, the farm and agricultural parts of America still hold just a sort of cultural resonance that is of very long standing. But I, I think in general, people don't have probably a very good understanding of what percentage of, you know, farms actually, you know, how much of that work is being done by people who own the farm. I mean, I think it's just sort of a general, still kind of a black box and people have a good sense of farms, but maybe not a very good sense of these issues that you're raising mm -hmm. right now, Alexis. So I guess my question is, is kind of around your work and how you raise consciousness, particularly in the midst of a disaster, which is a time, as you point out, in which the media is paying attention, politicians are paying attention. You know, it's not a, easy question to answer, I guess, but when you prioritize, like how you bring this to the public's attention, how do you go about doing that? 
Um, you know, I, I, I think the pandemic has really brought to light the need of the farm workers, of meat packers, their essential contributions to our community. And I think that's a good thing. I, I, I think it has uh, raised the consciousness of, of a lot of people about, you know, who farm workers are and, and what their lives are like and, and you know, how important they are um, and the vulnerabilities that they face. Um, you know, there there has been a lot of media coverage. Um, you know, I, I think um, continuing to raise awareness, podcasts like this, uh, news articles, social media. Um, I think uh, just taking a closer look at what's happening in your area. I think raising that consciousness is important. And you know, I um, we all have a role to play. Uh, you know, I, I think um, sometimes um, we think about food and we think about. Um, how, you know, you know, how, you know, like how the animals are treated and, and how the food is brought to our tables. We don't really think about the people who are actually harvesting the food and planting the food. And I think this has been a really good opportunity. And, and, you know, th there are, um, there's work being done out there to bring together employers and bring together workers um, to, to really bring forth corporate social responsibility. Um, and I think that will also continue. And I think that will build. Jason, let me just see, you know, bring you in on that that same question. Do you, do you perceive this as a time, like I know, for example, you're interested in the ways that you know consumer perception of the way animals are treated um, is important in this sort of broader kind of uh, conversation around what gets how the agricultural sector moves. Do you do you think this is a moment when perception of fair treatment for farm workers could be in flux? It's tough to say. I mean, I, it's not that's not a question that I've done a lot of research on. Uh, and as maybe Alexis alluded to, at least, it, it's almost like a hidden part of the food system people don't think about very much. I mean, um, we we have polled about what people think about farmers, um, and they often have a very positive connotation, as long as they don't get pushed in this corner of like the factory farm. But as long as you don't have that, you know, sort of pejorative, you people have a very favorable image towards farmers. You know, one, one thing I might build off of something Alexis said, and, you know, I'm not necessarily going to disagree with the statement about, you know, regulatory protections, but I, I think it is important to point out that there, there are some market incentives for these companies to adopt some protections on their own. And indeed, most of the meat packing, you know, companies, uh, spent millions of dollars trying to install plexiglass barriers and um, and space out workers and some of those things. And, uh, you know, Tyson, one of the biggest hired, you know, some medical workforce to try to provide medical care. Uh, and why they, do they do that? Well, I mean, we could be cynical, but it's but to, they want to make money. And um, during the worst of those meat packing plant shutdowns, actually, the wholesale price of beef was as high as we've seen on record. That's a pretty darn big incentive to make sure you have workers <laughs> show up to make sure you can produce output. So it's not a disagreement, but I would say that there are, you know, incentives uh, for companies to think about adopting some prote protections on their own. Is it enough? Um, you know, maybe, maybe not in some cases, uh, but I think it's important to recognize that there are some incentives built into the system to think about some of these some of these things I, I should I should mention by the way I uh, you, Scott said you're from Texas I grew up in the Texas Panhandle so sure. I spent uh, my summers from the age of about 12 to 18 hoeing cotton weeds um, and uh, several summers working in uh, food processing plants so my Spanish was pretty good by the time I graduated college uh, 
and it's tough work. That's that's a great motivation to finish a college degree. Um, and so I think even for somebody that has that kind of background that works in food and agriculture, I will say in the middle of this pandemic, it, it was, you know, I think it elevated in my mind the importance of the people working in our food system that we often forget about. And I, and I say that even as somebody who, who worked in that production area for a lot of my career. Hmm. Now, I grew up in Arlington, so the closest I ever got to a a farm was maybe the produce section of the Kroger <laughs> grocery store. It was, it didn't have that same experience that you had, but but it's a point well taken. And, and just to come back to you, because you were saying earlier about some of the differential um, that you saw between the beef and pork uh, packers and the chicken manufacturing. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? Because you were just saying that some of the chicken manufacturers seem to maybe have adopted um, early on, some kind of response on their on their own. Can you say a little bit more about that? Certainly, that obituary I read at the top um, was taking issue with Georgia, at least, in the way yeah. Georgia has uh, has not regulated the chicken. Well, well, I'll just say we don't know. We we can right. see from the data that that chicken processing, just in terms of total volumes, never was less than six percent below where they were last year, or or more than seven percent six. 6% below or above where they, where they were last year. Um, so I can speculate on reasons why. One may be that just the geographic location of those plants is more in the Southeast United States. And at least at the time when we were seeing the surge in cases in beef and pork plants, the Southeast wasn't as experiencing the same kind of spread. Um, now they've that hasn't been true right. since then. The, the other issue just may relate to labor density. Um, that a chicken is a smaller animal. Most of the labor in these plants is involved in what you might call disassembly, uh, and a chicken's just a smaller bird. You don't you don't need quite as many workers to break that down. But we, I think the truth is we just don't really know, um, you know, why we've seen these differing outcomes in different cases. You know, at, uh, one aspect of all this too that I think is is a really tough thing to think about is, um, you know, what's the outcome of some of these, you know these situations, whether it's in meatpacking or other areas, even on farm workers. And you know, the incentive is probably for, for folks to think a bit more about automation um, to relieve some of that pressure from labor. It's kind of hard to remember, but I, you know, I was in one of the biggest, you know, uh, meatpacking plants in the country, not that long ago before the pandemic happened. And they were talking about their labor problems, not from the standpoint of COVID of course, but that the economy was so good. They're having a hard time getting enough labor at the prices they were willing to pay, I guess. Uh, for workers to show up there. And so these conversations about automation and finding substitutions for labor, I think has is, is only been accelerated by this COVID pandemic. Now, what does that do for the person who would have had that job? I think that's a tough thing to think about, but I think the incentive, both in production agriculture, whether it's harvesting and planting or in some of these food factories is gonna be one towards probably some incentives to adopt some more automation. And that, and that affects you know folks in a very different kind of way. to remind everyone you're listening to COVID calls and today we're talking about farm workers and agriculture and COVID-19 with Jason Lusk and Alexis Guild. Um, Alexis, I, you know, you work for farm workers justice and the word justice is one that's um, 
I guess it's never too far from our national discussion, but right now it's in the center of our national mm -hmm. discussion as we think about um, the many injustices that have been exposed in the midst of this very complicated disaster that's the pandemic and everything else associated with it. And I guess I want to zero in on that a, a little bit, and particularly you know some of the issues we've already been talking about. Um, the problem mm -hmm. of documenting what the workplace is like for immigrants, um, and for the problem you said, this sort of national mismatch, some states do well protecting farm workers and, and some don't. Um, I guess I'm, I'm really curious about, from, from your perspective, how are farm workers, particularly immigrants, coping at this time? And, and, and how, what kind of resources are they able to rely upon to try to not just survive, but actually see potentially some justice out of this situation? Because it strikes me some of these numbers that we're hearing and these situations that they're being forced into are fundamentally unjust. Well, farm workers are among the most vulnerable, um, among the most underserved population because they're much more isolated. They're in rural communities, they're isolated. Um, H2A workers even more so because they only here for a short period of time. They live in employer-fired housing. Um, but that being said, you know, there, there are a lot of organizations, community-based organizations, uh, farm worker organizations, community health centers, migrant health centers, um, legal services organizations that are doing a lot in order to connect farm workers to resources, whether that's testing or treatment or mental health services. Mental health has been a big challenge for farm workers, especially H2A workers, because they're much more isolated. Their movements, just like the New York Times article discussed, are much more restricted. Um, and there's a lot of stigma around COVID, a lot of fear. If you test positive for COVID, what will happen? Um, and, and so that's a huge need. And, and, and there are resources that are trying to get those resources to them. Um, you know, and then of course there are legal services organizations, labor unions who are, who are trying to, uh, really just kind of get, get farm workers to, um, know about their rights, um, and to encourage farm workers to, um, to assert their rights. Um, there also actually are a lot of organizations who are making masks because farm workers aren't getting masks. Um, and so um, different organizations, local organizations, national organizations are stepping in um, and they are getting masks to farm workers because they don't they're not getting them. You know, there there's a lot happening, um, but, you know, only so much can be done without real federal action. Um, and, and I think the most important really um, is a path to citizenship uh, for, for farm workers, because if there's not a path to citizenship, um, the farm workers will continue, especially undocumented farm workers will continue to be in the shadows um, and they will continue to be fearful about accessing services and asserting their rights and, um, and, and, and they'll forever be an underclass and, and, you know, for all they contribute to our economy, they should be um, able to be fully part of our communities. So justice in this instance looks to you like immigration reform. Uh, among many others, but but certainly um, it's central to to our mission. I, I mean, our mission is to empower farm workers, um, and you know, um, immigration status is a real central component of that. 
Jason, just to kind of turn the question slightly, um, I know also, you know, the, the economic impact of this disaster. I mean, you talked about the, the big meat packers, for example, and I'm assuming in the Midwest, there's the same for big agriculture. There must be enormous deep pocketed producers in various different sectors. But I live in the Northeast where there's still a lot of small, smaller family farms. And I guess that must be true in various parts of the country. And they produce for cities and they produce for sort of niche markets. And um, and not, they're also not all of them are multi-generational farms. They're maybe entrepreneurial um, farms and they're doing organic farming and they're doing you know all kinds of environmentally um, aware kinds of farming. I'm curious what, you're, what you think the impact, if, I don't know if there's any data yet, might be on that um, sort of aspect of the agricultural sector, because, um, you know, again, you're, you're sort of talking about an industry that's pretty centralized in some areas, but in other parts of the country, it's, it's not as deep pocketed as that. And I wonder how the Im impact of this pandemic is on them. Sure. Well, I will just comment, you know, 98% of all farms in this country are family farms. So e even the slightly bigger corn and soybean farms we have here in Indiana yeah. are, are right. still family run. Is still um, family owned. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Now, in terms of output, it would be something uh, lower than that, but still probably, in the, you know, 70-ish percent of total outputs by family farms. But to, more to your question, um, not great data. Uh, you know, anecdotally, I'd say there does seem to be renewed interest in this in more direct-to-consumer types of sales as people experience some disruptions with their no normal supply chains. Uh, you know, getting back to the meat packer thing again, I mean, they're talking to some of the smaller more kind of local meat packers, you know, they've been booked up for, you know, till next year, I think both in response to de both demand and supply side issues, producers trying to find alternative outlets, but also consumers trying to make sure they have a, a secure supply of meat. Um, so I think that's been true. On the one hand, what data I do have is uh, we had surveyed some consumers in, in a couple of locations in uh, Detroit and Phoenix uh, about a year or two ago about sort of just preferences for food bought at farmers markets, uh, urban markets versus grocery stores, and then sort of local versus non-local. So we repeated that survey uh, in May. And with the thought to, you know, do we do we see this in the data? And and somewhat surprisingly, actually, there was no up. Now that I should say this is specifically for tomatoes was the kind of you know, simulated choice scenario we were using. Um, there was really no change in local. I mean, people preferred local to non-local, but it didn't really change in terms of the premium people were willing to pay. Mm -hmm. and, and maybe curiously, actually, the preference for shopping in the grocery store relative to a farmer's market or, or urban market actually increased. And maybe that could, you know, we're all speculating here, but this possibly could be explained by an attempt for people to, you know, want a social distance, one-stop shopping, not, you know, enter into big crowded areas. Mm -hmm. And I haven't seen good data on it, but I, I will be interested to see what happened to kind of the local farmers markets this summer. Um, I suspect some have taken a hit because people are just not willing to get out as much. I'm not sure. I went to our local one here in town a few weekends and it, it looked kind of normal, but um, I, I, I think it will be, It'll be interesting to see what happens in other parts of the country there as well. So we're just uh, almost up on time. I just want to give each of my guests a chance to um, sort of make a final comment. If there's something we didn't touch on that you'd, you'd like to, or or um, maybe, you know, if there's something that you're really keeping your eye on most closely as we move through, I, I hope we're at the middle of this pandemic. I worry that we're closer still to the beginning, but let, let me be optimistic and say we're reaching the middle 
as we move into 2021, what kinds of questions you're keeping your eyes on in, in your work. Alexis, let me start with you on that. Uh, well, first of all, I want to thank you for inviting me to join today. Um, you know, I think in terms of 2021, of course, uh, we're thinking about, you know, if there is a new administration, what may happen in terms of policies and, and what can uh, what can be implemented. Um, and then, of course, we're thinking about a vaccine um, and how a vaccine will be allocated, um, making sure that there's equitable allocation to pharmacor communities, uh, a vaccine that is um, free or, or extremely low cost. Um, and widely available um, to farm workers to make sure that they have access. Thanks for that. And Jason, same question to you. It, it seems, I'm sorry I missed your piece that was in the, or your mention that was in the Times today. And I'm glad the Lexus name checked that. You've got a lot of studies, uh, a lot of plates spinning right now. You want to tell us about something that we could look for coming out of your shop soon? Yeah, well, actually, Alexis informed me of that too, so I hadn't seen it either. So that's good to know. That's the um, best when somebody yeah, else knows that you're in the Times and you don't. It's amazing. Yeah, that's right. Um, well, I think just in general, I'd say um, even from the very onset of this pandemic, it was pretty clear to me that we, we our food system was most vulnerable where labor was most involved, and I think that was true when it started. It's still true today. So I think. I think we're we've got some research to uh, Alexis graciously also mentioned the dashboard that we have here at Purdue to try to you know track provide an estimate of farm worker illnesses. We want to expand that, make it bigger, you know, particularly as we enter into the fall where cases could could go up. We're also just trying to study other supply chain disruptions, you know, that have happened, um, you know, whether it's the egg sector or what have you. A lot of it's just because we had a shutdown in in uh, food sales away from home. And there's a lot of folks that were dedicated. Sometimes they were the, the small local farmers that you mentioned before, Scott, dedicated to those markets. They, they lost their customers when those restaurants closed. So I think trying to understand the repercussions of that hmm. is really important. Uh, the last thing I'll mention that, you know, I'm keeping an eye out on is, uh, you know, we're in a recession. Um, people, you know, even outside the food sector, they've lost their jobs, they've they got lower incomes, and that affects what people eat. And it's almost certain to affect food security rates and hunger rates. And I think that's the real, it, you know, in my mind, really tough challenge. I, you know, I, I want there to be protections for farm workers. I, I want them to be paid more, but that also has an impact on the, the cost of food and the price of food that affects other low income folks. And it's a really tough trade-off, I think, to think about. And I think those issues of food security could be one that we really want to keep an eye on over the next several months. Jason, where do we find the dashboard? Uh, if you search uh, the Purdue Food and Agricultural Vulnerability Index, it hopefully will show up on okay. one of those mentions. And like I said, it's uh, it needs some updating, but we hope to do that in the, in the coming weeks. Okay, I'm gonna we'll look for that and we'll tweet that out. And Alexis, we'll keep uh, tabs on the work you're you're doing there, Farm Workers Justice, and make sure we get that that work out as well. I want to remind everyone you can catch COVID calls every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time tomorrow. We're going to be talking with a couple of student journalists, uh, college journalists. This has been a time in which. Uh, journalists have played such a crucial role, and I've been really interested in the important reporting that's come off campuses. So we'll we'll look at that tomorrow. And I want to thank my guests, Alexa Skilled and Jason Link, um, for your time here today on COVID Calls. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you tomorrow, five o'clock.